please would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, I've entitled this evening's message, Fearless Trust in God. And to read the whole psalm, all 14 verses. Psalm 27, verse 1, hear the word of God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. And such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come to you this evening in complete dependence on you. Would you speak to us through your word? Take away the words of mere man. Show us what we need. Help us, Lord, in our walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's a a famous story of the Japanese soldier called Hiru Anada, who didn't know that the Second World War was over. And he spent 29 years in a jungle on on a small island in the Philippines until 1974. On the one hand, he had orders from his superior officer never to surrender. And on the other, he was never convinced that the war was over. There were, other, there were three other men with him. One left the jungle in 1950. The other two died there, never knowing the truth. One of them died in a skirmish with local troops in the early 1970s, still fighting. They killed 30 people in that time. People tried to reach out to them without success, and it was only when they they, they flew in his former commander in 1974 that he believed him. He rescinded the order 
There was another Taiwanese soldier who was found alone on a different island in Indonesia, growing food to survive at the end of the same year, 1974, not knowing the war was over. There was others too. Now, I could use that illustration in, in multiple ways, but I want to make this point. They were unnecessarily living in fear all that time in a battle that didn't exist. Now, for them, peace had come through the battle being lost. They were on the other side. But they didn't know it. But you see, for us, in the Christian life, even though the skirmishes continue, the war has been won. Ultimate eternal peace. The war is, is over. By living in the fear of God, we do not need to fear the devil and all of his, his schemes. He is a, a vanquished enemy. We are victorious in Christ because of Christ. Therefore, even though we have very real enemies today, we can live with fearless trust in God. I wonder then if I was to ask you if we should fear anything, how you would answer. I'm sure there's different answers for believers and unbelievers. But as a believer, should you fear anything? Well, Scripture tells us no and yes. Let me explain because we need to define our terms carefully so that we understand what this passage is, is teaching on alongside the wider teaching of, of Scripture. Let's look at the context of this, this personal yet intense psalm. This is a comforting passage, but it's also terrifying in a way. We see from the heading immediately that it's written by David. We're not given much else by way of detail. Some commentators point to a number of instances this could refer to, but, but they don't know for sure. We, we can't know. And what we find here are general truths that apply across many circumstances. And that was the intent of the Holy Spirit. We see truths about God. We see truths about ourselves. And this is the very same God that we serve today, that David served then. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of that as we progress. You see, God has not changed since the moment this was inspired by the Holy Spirit and written down for the first time. You see, this is a time when David finds himself under pressure. What does he do? He considers God's attributes. He considers God's faithfulness and expressed his fearless trust in, in him before, during, and after every difficulty. And in the light of those truths, he then, he then considers his opponents, his enemies, whoever they are, and he sees them as unworthy or worthless relative to who his God is. And these are some of the truths we need to apply to our lives this evening. I don't want to break this up into four points. If your Bible is like mine, you can see four distinct sections here. And it's interesting that pastor and Old Testament scholar Dale Ralph Davis calls this a paradoxical song. He sees the first part, the first half, if you like, our first two points, as in his words, radiating such marvelous assurance. It's all, it's all positive. It's all confident. It's faith-filled. But then he points to the second half of this psalm, our final two points this evening, showing such urgent need in his 
words. There's a contrast, and we maybe see some fearfulness seeping back in. There's a wrestling here that's often true of us, even when we do have faith, and we can slip back into fearfulness. And the the Christian life is often like that. We, We know the truth. We've been told it. We know how we should react, but then we can, but we shouldn't slip into harmful ways of thinking. One commentator described our emotions. He says, they're in a tug of war almost all the time, depending on what life deals to us from one moment to another. We vacillate between determination and doubt, security and insecurity, firmness and fearfulness, trust and trembling, confidence and cowardice, being adamant or being anxious. We may not swing very much, but we do feel the tug of these two extremes. Faith and fear fight for the mastery of our souls. Whoever wins this fight will determine what kind of Christians we are going to be and what we are going to do for Christ with our lives. Now, don't misunderstand me here. This is not a question of David's salvation or your salvation. This is the battle within the believer And I hope that the truths we we find help you to set your feet on the healthy path, heading for fruitful Christian living, of a, a life of fearless trust in God. Look at our text with me. Consider our first of four points this evening as we ask this question, how do I live a life of fearless trust in God? So here's our first point from verses 1 through 3. You need to be dwelling on God. You need to be dwelling on God. You notice here as we, as we read, as we read, that verse 1 looks at David's present relationship with God. The Lord is, present tense, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? And then verse 2, he looks backwards. He looks at the past. When evildoers came upon me, to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. And then verse 3 looks forward. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. He is past, present, he has past, present and future confidence in the Lord his God because of his God. And this is the Lord, this is Yahweh. This is the personal, covenant-keeping God, not a distant God. But this first section here shows God as personal. See what David does? He uses that word, my, twice. And then David opens up some of what we know about God, you see. And two metaphors jump out in these first three verses. He is light and he is defense. My light and my defense. And we know what light does, don't we? It dispels darkness. It averts danger. It gives direction. It gives help. It shows where we should go. It reveals reality. It uncovers sin. God is the source of light, the source of wisdom and truth. Of course, Christ in the New Testament called himself the light of the world. But this seems to be the only place in the Old Testament that God is referred to as light. Jesus in John 12, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me 
will not remain in darkness. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And of course, Christ himself is the greatest, the inextinguishable light source, the creator of light. But you see, there's another side to this, isn't there? Without this light, without God, you're in pitch darkness. Distress and sorrow and confusion. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. And I'm telling you right now that there's danger, but you can't see it. Every step you take is treacherous without God. You need the Lord to be your light and salvation, but you also need Him to be your defense. That second clause in in verse 1, we know what that means. It's, It's safety, it's protection, it's refuge, it's a stronghold. It's a fortified place, a fortress. The Lord looks after David. He sees that he's the one that keeps him alive. He's the defense of my life. And there are multiple other places in Scripture where we can see how important this truth is. This is repeated in multiple different ways. For, God, from, for God's people, Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Psalm 144.2, my loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge. Psalm 33.20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield. Psalm 125.2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. Psalm 62.6, he only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. You see, God shields and protects his people. He fights for us, Exodus 14 tells us. He's the defense of my life. He is your deliverer and rescuer in salvation, but he's also your defense, your defender. Look again at verse 1. You see, both of those words or descriptions lead to two questions. Because he is my light and my salvation, because he is the defense of my life, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I dread? That's where his confidence is. And this is where we need to pause just for a moment and and explain and consider exactly what the Bible means by that word fear. Because it's richer and deeper than you might think. And so this is what I want you to grasp. I want you to think about two types of fear. The first is that that terror, that scaredness. You're terrified. And and we see that throughout our verses when enemies are are there. We see it elsewhere in in Scripture as well. And we experience that in our lives. This is the type of fear. An unforgiven, unbeliever should definitely have. Because there's nothing you should be more fearful of than the holiness and justice and wrath of a pure God. But the the second type of fear has been defined as the the fear of veneration and honor. The fear of respect or awe. To revere something. Somebody or someone who is a a superior. And I, I read in one book that this is certainly dominant for the believer, but it's not exclusive from that other type of fear. 
There can still be that first type of fear in a believer in a slightly different way, of course, but it should bring feelings of terror when we sin against God. One commentator said, It is a fear that leads us not to run from Him, but to draw near to Him through Jesus Christ and gladly submit to Him in faith, love, and obedience. And so these these meanings can mix. Fear is essential in salvation in order to become a believer, but then also in sanctification, in becoming more like Christ. John Murray says that the fear of God is the soul of godliness. What does he mean? He means if you fear God rightly, it leads to holiness. It leads to Christ-likeness. And even in Scripture, we find these meanings overlapping, and sometimes it's hard to pull them apart. Sometimes, as believers, it is right to be afraid of God. We we read of God-fearing people in Scripture as a good thing, including both meanings. He's a consuming fire. And even for believers, we know that He is ever-watching, seeing even your thoughts and your motivations. As believers, we live in quorum Deo, in the very face of God, in His presence, which we get hints of in verse 8, where we, we should be seeking God's face. But I wonder, does thinking about God Himself, knowing more about Him, knowing Him more closely, does that instill that awe-inspiring, faith-instilling, and worshipful fear in you? How important it is to try to grasp hold of God, to understand Him more, to understand His majesty, His greatness, that He is holy and pure and glorious and everlasting and wise and beautiful and powerful and and just and righteous and sovereign and tender and loving and limitless. He is supreme beyond and above all, the source and the fountain of all, and perfect in every way. Right now, He's sustaining your brain and all the electrical impulses and messages from your ears so that you can understand what you're hearing. And at the same time, He's maintaining your physical heart and allowing it to pump to to get you all the way through the sermon. And he's doing the same for everybody here and all over the world. He's coordinating the the clouds in the sky and the temperature and the oxygen levels and the animals and the plants as they prepare for the cold weather. He's holding the magnetic fields in place and the sun's rays so that our world stays habitable. He's managing the Milky Way, a rather minor and local solar system. And all the rest, he's, he's everything. He made everything. He controls everything. And knowing more about God should drive you to your knees in adoration and praise. Does that not impact your affections and your actions when you read about God in Scripture and you experience God in your life? Knowing this God is personal, that He sent His Son made of flesh and blood just like you, in weakness, in his humanity, to to a defined geographical area in his vast creation, 
to pay the price of your sin. Why would he do that? Because it brings him maximum glory. And we should rightly give it to him through reverential worship. We need to fear him. We need to be in awe of God. Fearing God rightly gives your life purpose and meaning. It's a practical truth. It's an active and ongoing way to live, living in worshipful fear, walking in it, all to his glory. Richard Elaine, in his wonderful book, Heaven Opened, shows us how those two meanings can combine for the believer. He says, to fear God is to have the awe of God abiding upon the heart. To be under a sense of the majesty and glory of the Lord shining forth in all his attributes, especially in his holiness and omniscience, that he knows everything. The glory of his holiness, that's the one type. And then he goes on and he says, and the sense of such a holy eye upon the soul strikes it with dread and consternation. Similarly, John Bunyan, in his book Pilgrim's Progress, describes this conversation between those two men, Hopeful and Christian. Listen, Hopeful says, How will you describe right fear? Christian answers him, True or right fear is discovered by three things. One, by its rise. It is caused by saving convictions for sin. So it starts with conviction for sin. And then secondly, it drives the soul to lay fast hold of Christ for salvation. And then thirdly, it begets and continues in the soul a great reverence of God, His Word and ways, keeping it tender and making it afraid to turn from them to the right hand or to the left, to anything that may dishonor God, break its peace, grieve the spirit, or cause the enemy to speak reproachfully. You see, so again, this is how this fear of God has a richness and combines these two meanings for believers. That the fear of God is used in our conviction to show us our sin, in our salvation, and then in our sanctification, becoming more holy like Christ. William Strong says that we need to dwell on God in order to understand and apply this fear. Listen, pray what is meant by the fear of the Lord. Reverential fear and awe of the majesty of God from a right apprehension of His greatness and holiness. And then he quotes Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. That is, God being rightly known and the soul thereby duly overawed. A man had never any wisdom till this entered into his soul. John Brown said this, We are to fear him. That is, we are to cherish an awful or reverential sense of his infinite grandeur and excellence, corresponding to the revelation he has made of these things in his word and in his works, inducing us in us a conviction that his favor is the greatest of all blessings and his disapproval the greatest of all evils and manifesting itself in leading us practically to seek his favor as the chief good we can enjoy and to avoid his disapproval as the most tremendous evil we can be subjected to. Such is the fear which the Christian man 
ought to cherish and manifest towards God. See those two rhetorical questions? Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I dread? The answers are self-evident to David and any, any follower of God. Because the Lord is in those positions we described, the answer is that I should not or do not need to fear or dread anyone at all. That's the logical conclusion in the present tense today. Then he looks backwards and then he looks forwards. And he talks of those who came to get him. But because of God, they stumbled and fell. That's actually in the perfect tense. They will stumble and fall. It's inevitable. He gets assurance from that. It's not theoretical knowledge. God has proven this to him time and time again. See how the enemies fare against God. The answer is not well. He's confident in God on that basis because he knows God. You see, these truths are rooted in the very person and nature of who God is. And these actions against David's enemies simply prove, demonstrate those attributes that he's considering. And then in verse 3, he looks forwards and he even expects future problems. Even if enemies encamp all around me, trying that time-tested tactic of cutting off supplies and demoralizing the people into submission. Or even if war comes, look at the result. My heart will not fear. I will be confident. And again, we have other examples of this, this fearless trust in God, regardless of who or what the enemy is. Psalm 3, 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Psalm 20, verse 7, some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 23, 4, familiar words, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Psalm 46, 2, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Psalm 18, verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the, the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. You see the, the teaching here? It's true for you today. When he is your God, it does not matter who the enemy is. Or how many of them there are. You see the progression from verse 1 to verse 3. He asks, of whom shall I be afraid? Perhaps a singular individual. To a vast host around him in verse 3. You see, it's irrelevant. Whether it's an individual or the whole world. Relatively speaking, compared to God, they are nothing. Digging back into church history, we find one of my favorite examples in the, the person of Athanasius, an early church father, and he experienced those around him who were trying to, to get him because of his faithfulness to God. And if you know your church history, you'll know that he has a famous phrase or name associated with him. It's Athanasius contra munda. Athanasius against the world. But it didn't matter. Because this God was and is his God. 
This is your God, believer. And we are in a place where evil men, men who are anti-God, are still around. He is your God, believer. So you see, in one sense, that we, that we don't have to fear, because who is there to be afraid of? But it's because we do fear God that we don't have to fear man. It was William Greenhill who said, When the fear of God is strong in your heart, then the fear of man ceases. Or William Gurnall rightly says on our coffee cups in the cafe at my work, workplace, We fear man so much because we fear God so little. One fear cures another. So if you fear God biblically, you will not fear anything else. doesn't matter what the danger is. By fearing God rightly, you will not fear man or Satan. Romans 8 asks, if God is for you, who is against you? Nothing, no one can separate you from his love. But you see, if you misunderstand these truths, you can be a prisoner to fear. It can paralyze you. You can be captivated by it rather than captivated by God who solves it. Believer, Satan wants to hamstring you with fear. But it shouldn't be that way. Listen to the instructions given to God's people in Deuteronomy 10. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. So we've seen firstly that dwelling on God is a foundational part in David's life of fearless trust in God. You must first fear God and it will transform you from death to life from unbeliever to believer, and then you continue to live in that context of awe and wonder, personally knowing God, this sacrificial loving God who is your light and salvation, who is your defense as you grow to be more like Christ. Now our second point is in the second section there from verses 4 through 6 when considering how we can live lives of fearless trusting God. Here's the second thing. You need to be dwelling with God, with God, not just on God. You see, there's been in history many great military leaders like David. His desire, though, is bigger than any mere mighty conquest in this passage here. Many of those other leaders may have conquered much of the world, but did not have this most important of desires that we find here. Maybe I can try to bring this up to, to today when we can think of the men in the news, the Jeff Bezos or the Richard Branson or the Elon Musk. They may have conquered the world in some respects and will have earned more than all of us combined since this service started than we will in our lifetimes. But they need this desire of David to be truly victorious in life. If they or anyone else does not have this desire, their life will ultimately be a tragic one. Do you see that? Different measuring standards for biblical Christians against the world. So I don't want you to miss the first part of verse 4 here. This is critical. This is the main request of the psalm. David's, David expresses this, this one thing. 
This one wish, this one prime desire above all else, above worldly riches and acclaim, above any other treasure. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple, to live in God's presence, to gaze upon all his beauty and perfection. Enjoy his presence, delight in it, rest in it, rejoice in him, greatly desire and long for him, overflowing in our hearts because of his goodness, trusting his protection. In Exodus 33 and 34, we have that account of Moses in the cleft of the rock and the beauty and the glory of God. He, he passes by and Moses just gets a glimpse. What's the result? Moses is down on his face in worship, this holy, pure God. And when we understand God, we, we delight in Him, and it leads to worship and to want more, to dwell with Him. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. So this is David's request. He's, he's building on his confidence in God that we've just seen. He, to seek the Lord, to continually dwell with the Lord, to behold his beauty, to delight in him, to gaze continually, to examine, to consider, to scrutinize who his God is. Look, look where he longs to be in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, continually to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. It's a shelter. Or the word is also used in Psalm 10 or Jeremiah 25, and, and it's a layer, a lion's layer. You see the protection there? Who'd come in, into there? In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. So you see, this could be referring either to his desire to be in God's house worshipping regularly, or more generally, just wanting to dwell all day, every day in God's presence, wherever he is. So he dwells on God, but he also dwells with God, resulting in fearless trust. You know, I was at a conference this last week in Fort Worth, Texas, of professors in seminaries all over the world. Some of these places are desperate institutions where they dwell on God all day without dwelling with God. It's not intellectual knowledge you need. It's ex experiential, true knowledge of God, personal knowledge that He is your God and, and your Savior. And that results in fearless trust and true confidence and true assurance. He has this appetite, this hunger, this longing to be with God, to know God, fellowshipping with Him. It's an all-consuming desire, and it in intensifies His assurance, because He knows He's safe there. Builds His confidence, this closest possible fellowship, this side of heaven. He has this insatiable hunger for intimacy, Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, as the deer pants for the water, 
So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It's quite the picture of protection here. In Psalm 27, David is safe. He's, he's hidden away. He's out of reach. He's high up on a rock. He's on a sure foundation in a shelter away from danger. He's saying the same thing in many ways, layer upon layer, to say, I am safe with God. I have confidence in God. Psalm 34 tells us that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he rescues them because he's totally safe, because he's beyond any kind of danger. He can say with fearless trust, And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tents sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. He's he's away from all the problems going on below now. In this sin-cursed world, he's victorious over them because he will be kept by Yahweh, and it results in joy and thanks and praise and fearless trust in God. So here's our third point as we shift gears a little and see David change what he's saying, really, in some respects, the, the tenor at least. He has expressed confidence in God. He's, he's triumphant. He has dwelt on God. And he now seeks to dwell with or in the Lord. But now he cries out with distress, but still in trust. Look at verses 7 through 10, our third point. You need to be determined to seek God. You need to be determined to seek God. And so, here in the words of uh, commentators Jamieson, Fawcett, and Brown from their commentary, in verse 7, we have a transition from triumphant confidence to mournful supplication, descending in thought from heaven to earth. He vividly realizes his pressing danger, and so cries to the Lord not to forsake him. See, he pleads with God here in verse 7, cries out for an answer. Then in verse 8, we see the command, we see God speaking here, quotation from God himself, to seek his face. I wonder if you have that desire. If you are like the world, which is so superficial, we can bring that into our Christianity. We can bring formalism or, or habit. When you come to pray, do you understand who you're speaking to? Who's, who's listening? Who's, whose attention you have? See, that, that's part of it we've seen in the first part of this psalm. We need to understand who your God is. And then you wouldn't be flippant coming to Him in prayer. You wouldn't take it so lightly. You have an audience with the King of Kings. And He is disposed towards you. He loves His children. Turn to me, seek me, be devoted to me completely. It's not an ominous thing to live in God's presence. It's, it's a beautiful thing. We should want to please God. It's not like living constantly with a policeman in uniform, constantly on edge with his, his little book. You know how you change your driving when you see him parked there in his blue car. No. To live in God's presence is a delight. You want his approval. You want to bring him glory in all that you do. You want to live with that mentality, knowing he watches on lovingly towards his children. You notice in Romans 3.18 that 
If you don't fear God and seek God, <coughs> it impacts how you live. It says there is none righteous, not even one. And it goes through a whole description of these people. And then it tells us why. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They aren't seeking God. They aren't seeking His will. They're not after His smile, His favor, His, his fellowship. But you see, believer, in contrast, you need complete devotion to God. Asking Him, petitioning Him, worshiping Him, and therefore having full confidence in Him because you know Him, seeking His face in every situation, focusing on His faithfulness and, and goodness in every circumstance. It's a command here to seek. It's a continual action. And even in verse 9, David hasn't forgotten what he's done for him. You have been my help, he tells, tells us. He knows that even if those closest to you step away, family members, it says, God won't. God won't. Oh, to be in his presence is, is such a comfort, such protection. And in verse 10, there's an interesting phrase. It says, but the Lord will take me up. One commentator, Fawcett, says that this contains three ideas, a broad meaning. The Lord will take me up, take me in, and finally gather me with his saints. You see, there's, there's hope here looking ahead to the final consummation of all things. He's not just safe today. He's safe forever. That's why you can live in fearless trust of your God. Know God. Dwell with Him. Seek Him continually. Submit to Him in all things. Your life's object is to live for Him. Nothing is more important. Laying your destiny at His feet. Being a living sacrifice for His cause. He's everything. And you need to surrender your all to God and Satan and his minions and his followers will have nothing on you. Dwell on God. Dwell with God. Seek God. And in that final section, our fourth and final point, verses 11 through 14, you need to be determined to wait for God. You need to be determined to wait for God. And this is David's conclusion, verse 11, he submissively asks for guidance to be taught. He desires a level, a plane, a straight path with no hindrances or obstacles or blockages. He, he thinks of his enemies, but he concludes triumphantly. Even in the midst of all this, he sees God's goodness, and we see God's goodness, whatever we're going through. And without that, he would have despaired, it tells us. And also in this final section, we see David encouraging others. He's pointing others to these same truths. Twice here, he says, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. What does that mean? Well, language scholars tell us that here to wait in the original Hebrew has the sense of, of to stretch as you stretch out a rope. Or also to endure or remain or to thread like a spider that threads its, its web, a long process, a, a patient process. Or to look eagerly or to hope is part of the meaning as well because this waiting is active. It's an active verb. It's not passive waiting. It's waiting as we hope in the Lord, eagerly waiting for Him knowing he cares, showing patience, knowing that he is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise. So many places we could go to 
in Scripture where we read of believers, God's people, waiting on God. This is a normal experience. We hear echoes of our psalm in Psalm 25. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Hosea 12.6 Wait for your God continually. Psalm 37 verse 7 Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Again, similar exhortations are found in Psalm 62. My soul waits in silence for God. Only from him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Psalm 130 verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. You see, this is active. This is anticipation. This is eagerness of that watchman who is attentive, not just waiting passively. Proverbs twenty twenty two. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Isaiah 40, verse 31, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. Isaiah 49, 23, Those who, hope, those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. And finally, Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. You see, do you have such a trust and patience and faith? Do you have that anticipation God does all things in his timing. He's a good God, a personal God, and, and we can leave our troubles with him. He repeats it twice in Psalm 27. Wait on me. Wait on him. And both are commands, positively and expectantly, hoping and waiting on God, anticipating the, the future realization of, of his glory and your ultimate good. What should you do in your circumstances? Pray and wait for God. Trust His timing. Don't seek to go out in your own strength. Have confidence in God. His goodness is the antidote. He'll strengthen you. He won't let you go. Verse 14, it says, Be strong and let your heart take courage. It's acting with vigor is the sense there. So we've considered how we can have fearless trust in God, and we've seen what, that we must dwell on God, dwell with God, we must seek God, and we must wait on God. You know Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. There is a way through all your difficulty with fearless trust in God. If you're overwhelmed, trust in God. Wait on God. Seek God. Hope in God. Understand your God. Who the object of your faith is. That's where you must focus your confidence. Once you are anchored to the rock of ages, you have nothing to fear. He's light. He's salvation. He's a stronghold. My friends, you need to choose faith over fear. You need to know God more deeply. Seek his face. Seek true wisdom and knowledge. Delve eagerly and relentlessly into his word to find out more about him. That will buttress your faith. That will deepen your trust. 
My friend, you can trust God no matter what. No matter what circumstances you find yourself in today. Puritan Richard Baxter says this, Let thy soul retain the deepest impression of the almightiness, wisdom, goodness, and faithfulness of God, and how certainly all persons, things, and events are in his power, and how impotent all the world is to resist him, and that nothing can hurt thee but by his consent. The principal means for a confirmed confidence in God is to know him, And to know that all things that we can fear are nothing and can do nothing but by his command or motion or permission. I am not afraid of a bird or a worm because I know it is too weak for me. And if I rightly apprehend how much all creatures are too weak for God and how sufficient God is to deliver me, his trust would quiet me. Oh, strive after that intimacy with God. David isn't merely satisfied with protection from enemies. He wants God himself. He wants to know him, to dwell with him, to worship him, to be taught his ways. He's waiting. He's hoping in him. You know, fearless trust in God means that you don't have to be fearful of the next big atheistic book or the antagonistic teacher or professor at school or college, or the abusive family member, or the forceful and mocking colleague in the workplace, or the godless government official who tries to restrict Christian liberties. You don't have to be fearful of being the only one in the room standing for Christ, because, believer, you're not alone in the room, ever. You don't have to be fearful of anyone who seeks to harm or persecute you for Christ's sake. You don't need to be fearful of anyone or anything that has authority over you in some way. You don't have to have any worry or anxiety. Why? Because whoever or whatever it is, there is an infinitely higher authority. Your Father God. Your infinite, glorious, limitless, caring, powerful, loving Father is yours, believer. You must know it and fearlessly fearlessly live in that knowledge. Act on this truth. And so that that anti-God person or institution may stand tall before you. And remember, you must love your enemies and pray for them. But in some senses, you can think... Who do you think you are? Do you know who my father is? Do you know what a ridiculous and dangerous position you are in? Do you know his power? And you have the audacity to shake your little puny fist in the face of the one that makes demons shake and tremble? This is my God. This is my father. Luke 12 verse 4 says, I say to you, my friends, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. George Swinnock tells us that the incomparable God 
must have incomparable trust. The more able and faithful any person is, the more firmly we trust him. Now God is incomparable in power. He hath an almighty arm. Incomparable in faithfulness. He cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, God must have our surest love and firmest faith. We must esteem his words as good as deeds and rely on all his promises as if it were already performed. You hear that confidence? Acts 9 verse 31 it's the account of Saul early, very, very early in his ministry. Under threat in Damascus and then Jerusalem as he begins to boldly proclaim Christ. He's trying to link up with the disciples and they're trying to work him out too. And they eventually send him to Tarsus to keep him safe. And then we have this wonderful pause, which I pray for Harbour Church. It says... So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. May you continue to increase. May you fear him and continually seek him and trust him and wait on him. Oh, my friends, don't have a small vision of your God. My friend, choose faith, not fear. Single-mindedly pursue Christ. Have confidence and courage because that God is your God. He has his eye on you. I encourage you this night to have fearless trust in God like David. Let's pray. Almighty God, everlasting Father, we come to you in humility, pleading with you to show us more of your greatness and as a result to increase our faith. Help us, Lord, to have that fearless trust in you. And we come to you tonight for any here who do not fear you. Lord, we pray that you will show them the good news of Scripture, the, abil the availability of grace and mercy through our Lord Jesus Christ, the possibility of peace with you. Oh God, would you be glorified by saving sinners this night? We pray this all to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.